Today we begin our series, You Asked For It, and over the last month, you as a church have submitted questions that you have or maybe find it difficult to answer regarding God, uh, the Bible, and our faith. And so over the next four weeks, uh, we are going to answer all the questions that you submitted. We're going to give proofs for the existence of God, explain how Jesus can be fully God and fully man, Excuse me, and how an all good and loving and powerful God can allow evil and suffering, and, and how we can trust the reliability of the scripture and, and the endless other why questions that you submitted. And we usually preach for about 30 to 35 minutes, so that's about two hours in the next month. So if you think that I talk fast, you've heard nothing yet. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, I thought it appropriate to start off this morning with a question of my own Is it okay to doubt? And to answer this question, I want to share with you the story of Thomas. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and shortly after Jesus had risen from the dead, we get this story of him experiencing doubt. See, all the other disciples had seen Jesus after the resurrection, but Thomas hadn't seen him yet, and he simply could not believe it. The other disciples were trying to convince him, we saw the Lord, but this is what Thomas said. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then about a week later, Jesus appears again to his disciples, and this time Thomas is present. And you know what Jesus says to Thomas? He says, Thomas, how dare you doubt? You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, Thomas, you doubted? You should be ashamed of yourself. No, he didn't say that either. Rather, this is what he said. He said, put your finger here. See my hand? Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, Jesus leans into Thomas's doubt. He responds with giving him reasons to believe, reasons to accept that Jesus really had come back to life. He gave him evidence that led to belief. And you and I today, who stand some 2,000 years after this event and after this story, may still have questions Real questions that have led to real wondering and perhaps even to doubt. And I would say that it is okay to doubt. It's okay because as a reasonable and responsible person, you ought to consider the truths of this book and the things that we place our faith in. It's both reasonable and responsible to doubt because these claims have great weight to them, eternal weight. But let me say this, never doubt alone. Always surround yourself with people who can give you good advice, who can help answer tough questions, and who can help lead you through your wondering and doubt. That's why a series like this is so helpful and healthy for our church. So we're going to dive in this morning with the very first question. Does God exist? Wow, that's a pretty big one. And uh, really, we could dedicate a whole series to this, but this morning, um, I'm just going to give you three common arguments that are used to point to an intelligent being that created the world. Because if we can argue that something intelligent created our world, then we, begin, we can then begin to point people to the existence of God. This very first argument uh, is called the cosmological argument. It starts with this basic cause and effect principle. If something came into existence, it's because something caused it. There we go. If something came into existence, something must have caused it. And so the question is, well, the world came into existence, so we must ask that logical question. Then what caused it? 
Now, before we make that leap, perhaps there are some who hold to a belief that nothing caused the world. Perhaps the world just has always been. It's always existed. So let's consider some evidence. Astrology, chemistry, geology, and physics all teach us that the earth is aging, which points to a beginning. It's not eternal. First, in physics, the second law of thermodynamics teaches that energy becomes less available in a closed system. In other words, our world is running down. Energy is becoming less available. And so if the universe is running down, then it's not self-sustaining. And if it's not self-sustaining, then it must have had a beginning. Second, astronomy shows that there have been great changes in outer space. Astronomy is increasingly favorable toward the theory of an expanding universe in which things are moving further and further from each other, beginning with a primal explosion, thus a beginning. Furthermore, geology teaches that there have been great changes in the earth. Geology recognizes the disintegration of radioactive minerals and uses this information to date the universe. And if something has age, then it cannot be eternal. Lastly, chemistry holds to a theory of consumption of hydrogen, which is the source of most energy, thus a beginning. Because if something's being consumed, it it can't just have always begun. It's lessening. See, it seems as if the evidence points more to a beginning point, suggesting that the world cannot just have always existed. So it doesn't seem probable that nothing caused the world. So this raises the next question. So this raises the next possibility. Then something eternal must have caused it. Either some eternal matter or some eternal chance or an eternal being. And we'll call that being God. Now let me pause and recognize that there is another possibility here. The possibility that something non-eternal created the world. But I would submit to you this morning that that's not a real possibility. Really it's only distracting us. Because if something non-eternal created the world, we have to ask the question, then what created that thing? And if it too is non-eternal, then what created it? And see, at the end of the day, we are left with these three possibilities. Eternal matter, eternal chance, or an eternal being that we call God. It just seems logically improbable to just have this linear regression of non-eternal things creating each other with no real beginning point. So the question is now, which of these three possibilities caused the world we're living in? This is where we're going to get into our second argument. It's called the teleological argument. This argu- or oftentimes it's also known by the intelligent design or the watchmaker argument. This argument asks us to consider the evidence that points to some form of intelligence behind our created world. Now, all of us in this room would agree that things that have intricacies or details to them and also have an obvious purpose to their design, like a car or like computers or like a watch, all of them have some kind of intelligent designer. And since the universe itself is characterized by design and specific order, then a designer must exist. Now, there's no time for us to consider all of the evidence that point to an intelligent design, but I'll name two. First, the irreducible complexity of cells and the specific complexity of DNA. Now, as a side note here, I know many people often fear modern science. They're afraid that it weakens uh, the uh, arguments for the existence of a creator God. But I'd actually submit to you that it does quite the opposite. Because as more intricate instruments and tools are developed in science, like the t- uh, sorry, the microscope or some of our more advanced telescopes, we're able to see more and more of these complexities and details. And it seems to raise the odds to an even greater number that rules out the possibility of chance or matter that caused all of this. 
There had to have been an intelligent designer behind all of this. Because, after all, there are details like the exact speed of the rotation of the earth or the exact distance from the earth to the sun or the distance from the earth to the moon, that if any of these things were slightly adjusted in the smallest way, it would result in our world spiraling out of control, the tides of our ocean being uncontrollably high, or our world freezing or burning up. See, the evidence in the list could go on and on. There's no time for us to look at all of them, but I did want to give you a resource this morning If you're interested in looking at more things, this website right here, www.reasons.org, great resource to look for intelligent design. Now we're back to our chart here, and we have ruled out the possibility that nothing has caused, that nothing caused the world, that it did have a beginning point, and we've also looked at, because of the intelligent design, uh, that it likely is not probable that matter or chance caused the world, and so we're left with this eternal being we'll call God. Now, perhaps still you're not convinced. Let me leave you with one last argument, the moral argument. The moral argument suggests that since there are moral absolutes, things like murder and theft as an evil or treating people with dignity and respect as a good, since those things exist, there must be a moral lawgiver. C.S. Lewis, he's a big component of defending this argument. And in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, he said this, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they really can't get rid of it. In his book, he goes on to argue for the existence of God based on this understanding that every human being has within them a moral law code, and that this law code must have come from somewhere, and this somewhere has to be above and beyond us. Now, I recognize not everyone in our world agrees that there are moral absolutes that apply universally to every human being. However, to anyone who disagrees that there are moral absolutes, I'd have to ask that person, then where do your own convictions come from? Where does your own personal sense of right and wrong come from? Okay, maybe you don't agree that uh, there are universal truths that apply to everyone, but surely you have your own convictions about what's right and wrong. Where does that come from? Surely it's more than just your preferences, more than just your upbringing. Furthermore, a world without a moral lawgiver who is outside the human race, it's quite a terrifying thought. And that's why for me personally, not for everyone, but for me, it's the reason why the moral argument is one of the greater arguments for the existence of God. Because to me, morality is one of the more important issues of our day, not just because I'm a Christian, but also as a human being. And the reason this is the case is because, think about, if there was no moral absolutes, then there's nothing stopping anyone from doing anything they wanted whenever they wanted it. And almost every other worldview and religion regarding morality leads to either an anarchy or an ubermesh. And that word refers to a strong person or group of people who rises to the top typically the strongest, and this one person or group gets to determine right and wrong for everyone else with no true checks and balance system. And that idea frightens me. Could you imagine a world where there are no laws, or imagine a world where just because you're the strongest person, not the most moral person, the strongest person, you get to determine right and wrong for everyone else, regardless of what your own ethics are like. You may not know this, but Hitler and the Nazi regime often use that word of Ubermesh to refer to what they were doing. That kind of thought is terrifying. And even if someone would suggest, well, there's the possibility that uh, morality should be determined by the majority of people, that too has its own problems. 
Because what may be punishable and wrong today may be right and acceptable tomorrow. Or what do you do if there's a tie? 50% say it's right and the other 50% say it's wrong. See, no other solution, no other response, no other answer to the question of morality gives a more satisfying answer than the view that we hold to in Christian theism. That there is an all-good, perfect, and powerful God who is above and beyond us and who determines morality for us. Now, these arguments, the cosmological, the teleological, and the moral arguments, they are like strings in a rope. These arguments, when combined or woven together, make for a greater defense for a creator God. By themselves, they cannot prove God's existence. But working together, they give more credibility to the claim that he does exist. Now, I want to be honest and reasonable with what I'm telling you today, because these arguments only go so far So let me clarify what these arguments accomplish and what they don't. These arguments and defenses have pointed to convincing evidence for a being who is eternal, moral, perfect, self-existent, intelligent, and sufficient. What it does not prove is the God of the Bible. However, next week, we're going to begin to look at questions related to the Bible and how we can trust it and its content. And since the Bible teaches us about a God who possesses all of those qualities, that argument can then go in hand in hand with these arguments and make for a greater defense for an eternal, moral, perfect, intelligent being who created the world. Now, we're going to change gears a bit here because we need to discuss some of the issues and questions that were raised concerning who God is. One of the bigger mysteries of our faith is related to the Trinity. The question was asked, how are God and Jesus the same person? And I might throw into that mix, and the Holy Spirit. And so I've rephrased the question to be, how is the Trinity possible? Now, the traditional view of the Trinity is that God is three and yet one. Outside of Scripture, it would be very hard for us to defend this teaching because it's only revealed to us inside of the Word. Now, it's important to say that nowhere inside the Bible do you see the word Trinity. However, its its concept is clearly taught. Furthermore, the teaching of the Trinity is found mainly in the New Testament, but there are hints of it in the Old Testament, like Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. In the New Testament, the teaching of the Trinity is more clear. Matthew 28, 19 is a well-known passage, but it also contains in it this formula of sorts that links these three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together to emphasize their essential quality. Or in other words, putting them on the same level. Look at the verse. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The same person here linking them together. There are a lot of texts just like this one. 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, 1 Peter 1 and 2, Romans 15 and 30, 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. I could go on and on. All of them point to this understanding that there are three persons and yet, at the same time, only one God. So in order for us to answer our question, we need to look at what does it mean that God is one, and what does it mean that he is three? Now, at the very heart of the biblical teaching about God is his oneness or his unity. And to say that God is one, it actually means two things. First, it means that he is indivisible or not composed of parts. Unlike created matter, he's not composed of many little parts like atoms joined together in a divisible whole. 
He cannot be dissected or divided as if his characteristic of love is one part of his being and his characteristic of wrath is an entirely different part. All of God's attributes apply equally to his whole being. He cannot be divided in any sense. He cannot turn off, lay aside, or give up any of his qualities. Now, this does not mean that God's attributes are indistinguishable. To say that God is one means that there are no divisions within his nature, but it does not mean that there are no distinctions. But also, when we say that God is one, it means that he is the only God. There is no other God but him. There is no other. He is the only one. So, this is what it means that God is one. He's one in simplicity. You can't divide him up. And he's one in singularity. There's no one else like him. But that God is three, well, that means that there are three persons who share one essence or substance. And when I say person, I mean a thinking, willing center of consciousness. So that means that within this one divine nature are three individual centers of consciousness. Each of the three persons are aware that they themselves exist and they're aware of the other two beings. And these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are three distinct persons and yet at the same time, one God. Now the logical possibility of this seems improbable on the surface. However, it's only impossible if we're saying that God is three and one in the same sense but that's not what we're saying. We're saying that God is three in one sense, and he's one in another sense. I know, that's kind of a lot. So let me put that up on the screen. God is three in one sense, and he's one in another sense. He's one in the sense of his essence or his very being, but he's three in the sense that there are three distinct persons. Now, I know that this is really hard to kind of wrap our heads around, so let me give this example of water for a second. It's not a perfect illustration, but it'll help me make my point. Look at these three pictures. Which one of them is water? Oh, they're all of them. That's exactly right. I know there's all of them. That's right. All of them. And we all understand that what makes water, water, is not what state of matter it's in, but rather that it has this basic compound of two hydrogen and one oxygen atom. That's the essence of water. So all these pictures here show us water because all of them have the same formula, H2O. However, we also know that these three things, although all of them H2O, are still distinct and separate. One of them a solid, one a a, a liquid, and the other a gas. And so we can say about these three things that they are three, in the sense of states of matter, and they're one in that they're all has this same compound or, or, or formula of H2O. Now, I know this is not a perfect illustration because God is three in one at the same time, and water can't be all states of matter at the same time, but it does help to make our point that the Trinity is still possible. We understand that the teaching about the Trinity is filled with mystery, That God is one and three at the same time is beyond our finite minds to understand completely. However, just because because of that, we should never understand or think it is absurd or contradictory just because we cannot fully understand it. Now, since we've looked at God's existence and the concept of the Trinity, let's take the last bit of our time to look at the nature and the work of Jesus. Another question that was submitted was, how is Jesus both fully God and fully man? Now, it's important that we establish first and foremost that the Bible does affirm both Jesus' deity and his humanity. 
Concerning his humanity, Jesus experienced hunger and thirst. Matthew 4 and 2, he was hungry, right? Or John 4 and 6, Jesus was tired and he needed sleep, right? After a long journey, he was tired and he sat down by the well. Or all of us know that Jesus died. He experienced death. Matthew 27, 50, he gave up his spirit. One of the more important passages concerning Jesus being a man is John 1, 14, which tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we're told that this word becomes a human being. He takes on flesh. But Jesus' divinity is also clearly laid out for us in the scriptures. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or Philippians 2 and 6, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He is the very nature of God. It is important doctrinally that we maintain Jesus' full humanity and his full deity. To compromise either one would lessen the power of the cross. See, only a real human body could sacrifice his life and suffer death. Hebrews 9.22 says that blood is required for forgiveness. Look at it. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So a human body was necessary for the shedding of blood. But on the same hand, only one who is truly and fully divine could offer salvation to the whole world. Because when Jesus suffered, he suffered not just in his physical human body, but also in his divine nature as well. And because this infinite being is the one who suffered, the suffering was infinite and thus sufficient for the sins of the whole world. If he were just a man who lived a sinless life, he could only save himself. But since he was God, the suffering he experienced as the divine Savior was more than equivalent to an eternal punishment in hell for every single member of the human race. So now that we've established his deity and humanity as being taught in the scriptures and saw that it's important for us to believe in, the question now remains, how is it possible? How is it possible? I want to reference you back to what we said concerning the Trinity. Now, this kind of teaching is mysterious. It's difficult for us to answer, and there is no way that our finite minds can understand this infinite matter. However, we also must understand that it's not impossible, nor is it illogical, because just as we said with the Trinity that God is three in one sense and one in another sense, we're saying this about Jesus. He has two natures, and he's yet one person. Two complete natures, a complete human nature, a complete divine nature. But at the same time, he has only one center of consciousness, one unified center of thinking, willing, and emotional experience. It's only illogical if he's two and one in the same sense, but that's not the case. He's two in his nature and one in person. But in the final analysis of this, wherever we choose to land on Jesus' deity and humanity, we need to make sure that whatever we do, we would never suggest anything that makes Jesus something less than fully God or something less than fully man. Another question raised concerning Jesus was, what can we say about Jesus to someone who asks about him? I believe what this question was asking is, what stands out about Jesus that he's worth following? Why would someone consider giving their life to Jesus? And I think one of the better defenses for this uh, question is the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. Now, this argument starts off with four possibilities. Jesus either is a legend, a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. So let's rule out that first possibility of being a legend. And what I mean by that is he's someone who's made up. He was never real, a real historical figure. 
He was just some fiction that the Bible only tells about in the Bible alone. Well, history shows us and historical records show us that indeed there was a man, whether we accept he's Lord or not yet, there was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century in the area surrounding Galilee who died under Pontius Pilate and whose body still could not be found. And that evidence, that historical evidence, is found even outside of the Bible. There are non-Christian historians like Tertullian, Josephus, Tacticus, Pliny the Younger, and more and more that tell of the life of Jesus. So much so that the 15th edition of the Encyclopedia of Britannica said this, these independent accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 18th century, during the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th century. So it wasn't until almost 19 centuries later that they even began to doubt that Jesus was a real historical character, and it was on inadequate grounds. And so because there was so much evidence for the historical uh, life and ministry of Jesus, we're left with those other three possibilities. That Jesus is a liar, that he thought, or he said that he was the son of God, but he's lying about the whole thing, and we shouldn't follow him, not even for his good moral teachings. Or he was a lunatic. He was so crazy that really he should just be locked up in crazy town. Or the last possible answer is that he is who he says he is, that he's Lord. C.S. Lewis is famously known for developing this argument, and he says this about it. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a good human teacher. He's not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. I think when someone honestly and truly deals with the historical Jesus of Nazareth and his claims, they're either going to straight out deny him, or they're going to fall at his feet and call him Lord. There is no middle ground His call to discipleship was too high to be left to some lukewarm, half-committed, on-the-fence lifestyle. He called for everything or for nothing. And here's what gets interesting about the argument, I think. Typically, not always, typically, you will find it hard to find a reasonable person who will straight out call Jesus a liar or a lunatic. And the reason is because of some of the things that Jesus says. He is often quoted, even by those who do not follow him, for his great moral teachings, for his wisdom, and for his advice in life. And so, if you can't call him a liar, you can't call him a lunatic, he was definitely a historical figure, then the only logical conclusion is that he's Lord. Related to this question and to the liar and lunatic Lord argument, someone else asks, what do you tell people who can't accept the idea that the only way to heaven is through Jesus? I think going, again, back to that liar, lunatic, and Lord argument is a good starting place for this because it requires that someone deal honestly with Jesus and with his claims, including this one that he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. However, on a bit of a deeper level, I think the best approach is beginning with the concept of sin, helping someone realize that sin is a real thing and that sin needs to be dealt with and punished. And so the question is, how does sin get punished? And it is only within the Christian worldview and only at the cross of Jesus will someone find a system that is so simple, it's almost unbelievable, that it is not a system of a a person's own individual merits and works as in the Islam faith, 
That it's not one's own efforts to escape their own desires to reach nirvana as in the Eastern religions. That it's not this meaningless and immoral world that we're living in like the naturalist or atheistic worldview suggests. Rather, it's a system of grace. A system that no other worldview or religion offers. That your debt has been paid in full and that it was paid on the cross of Jesus. That no other person can liberate. No other person or way has surrendered itself for the benefit and cause of saving the entire world world. No other leader, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, no other religious leader ever even claimed to die or died uh, for the sins of the world in the way that Jesus did. And I think when grace is appropriately taught and sin is honestly dealt with, it'd be hard to conclude a better system than the one that Jesus offers. Every other way is simply hopeless. The last question we're going to deal with this morning is perhaps one of the more challenging and sobering questions for today. Someone asked this, does God really condemn those who've never heard the good news of Jesus? Or put it another way, will someone who's never heard of Jesus really go to hell? This answer is pretty hard because I want the answer to be a simple, no, God would never do that. But it seems as if the Bible teaches us something a little different. First, I should say this about the question. It's always working with an assumption The assumption is that God is unfair for condemning such people. The logic goes something like this. If they never knew about Jesus, then and we're saying they never knew about God and his commands to live for him. And so it's just unfair. They never had a chance. But the Bible tells us they did have a chance. Romans in chapter 1 tells us the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since, that may, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This verse has told us that even if you've never received the written word of God, you still are without excuse because it was known, evident, clearly seen, and understood, and yet you still willfully suppress the truth, and therefore you are without excuse. We often call this kind of revelation general revelation, where God reveals himself in creation and in an individual's own heart. There's a law written on the heart, the Bible teaches, there's a law written on the heart of every human being that knows what is true and right. And because of this, we can never say that God is unjust or unfair when he condemns such people. Now, it does seem to be the case that these same individuals will be held to a different standard than you and I who have the written word of God, but even still, they're responsible for the truths that were made known to them, the ones that were written on their hearts, they're without excuse. And since the general revelation of God never reveals Jesus or how to attain forgiveness through faith in Christ, we can only be left with one possible conclusion, that the people who do not hear about Jesus are lost and that they need to hear about him. Romans ten seventeen says, consequently, faith comes by hearing, and I love the older translations, and hearing by the word of God. Now, I recognize this is a hard teaching, but we need to view the unevangelized as lost and of needing to hear the gospel. In our hearts, we can hope for a gracious judgment by God 
And if there is any grace for the unevangelized, it has not been revealed to us in the scriptures. We can simply hope for it, but we can't be sure of it. And one day, if there are people in heaven who've never heard about Jesus, it will be by the grace system too, the same way you and I are getting there, and God will be fair and just in his judgment. But our minds need to stay focused on the biblical teaching regarding sin and salvation. That is that the entire world, every individual has sinned and is guilty before God and deserving of the full wrath of God. And regardless of what we hope for, we need to be bold and unwavering in our preaching and sharing of the gospel. After all, that's our mission here at Plum Creek, leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that wouldn't be our mission if we didn't believe in it. People need Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus because the truth of their eternal fate is sobering and terrifying. But it's also why it's so important and it's so urgent. We don't come here every week just to get this warm feeling inside of us. No, we come here every week because this is a truth that we believe in, that we confess and profess and that we're striving to live for. It's only Jesus that can save And people desperately need to hear about him. He alone offers forgiveness that no other person can offer. He alone is willing, was willing to consume and take upon himself the full wrath of God in our place so that we might be declared righteous to live eternally with him. Everyone needs to hear that message. And it's a hard truth, but it's a truth worth living for. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We praise you that you sent him to be a sacrifice on our behalf. And God, although we have a lot of questions and sometimes our questioning leads to wondering and doubt, I pray that you would give us wisdom and that we would grow in trusting you more and more. I thank you that indeed you are a creator, God, that you are all good and perfect and moral and eternal. And I also thank you that you sent Jesus to save us and save the whole world. God, give us a burning passion to reach those who haven't heard the good news. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, the risen Lord. Amen.